our understanding of the immune system and its involvement in cancer progression and then cancer spread, mind-blowing. I mean, it's mind-blowing. We understand the mechanisms here, and we understand the mechanisms of how our treatments are impacting that. And we don't want to focus on just short-term gains for long-term destruction. We must focus on short-term gains as a step stone to long-term healing. Until we achieve that in the field of integrative cancer, we must keep working. The pathway to healing is not through destruction. The pathway of healing is through healing. It's through the immune system. Welcome to the Practicing with Dr. Nathan Goodyear podcast. I'm the medical director at Brio Medical in Scottsdale, Arizona. I am both a conventionally trained and licensed medical doctor as well as a licensed medical homeopathic doctor. This podcast is your resource for a scientific-based discussion of all things cancer and beyond from a natural, holistic, and integrative perspective. It's time to teach the body how to heal. So here we go. Immunotherapy, the immune system. What is immunotherapy and what does the immune system have to do with cancer? That's what I'm going to talk about today in today's installment of the Practicing with Dr. Nathan Goodyear podcast. And this is important to understand because I often tell uh, patients and people when I speak is that the best answer to cancer is to never get it. That's the easy part. But good things happen to good pe- people all the time, but bad things happen to good people as well. So doing everything we can to prevent cancer, lifestyle, etc., cancer can still happen. So beyond preventing cancer, the best answer to cancer is the immune system. But before I dive into that, I would encourage you to um, share this podcast, Dr. Practicing with Dr. Nathan Goodyear podcast with whomever and wherever you think they could benefit from that. But thank you for watching this, but uh, subscribe and share so that we can grow this movement so that we can teach and empower more people to heal themselves. Again, the, the quote Hippocrates that is attributed to him is physician heal thyself. And I would say we need to update that Hippocratic, uh, Hippocrates quote to physician teach patients to heal themselves. So let's dive into what is immunotherapy. Obviously, it's two words brought together, immune and therapy. And you know me, I like to really dive into the historical and the origin root of of words because I think it really helps us to have a foundation. Now, what's interesting today is a lot of uh, people look at immunotherapy as a drug. So let's look first at this concept of what is a drug, the word, what is a drug and what is pharmacology etymologically speaking. So again, root origin, word origin, history origin. It's interesting when you look at the word drug, from the late 14th century, it's any substance used in the compos- uh, composition or preparation of medicines. Okay, so that's going back, you know, 1400 uh, century Anglo-French. Interesting. And when you look at a lot of the um, word origin there, uh, a lot of it is born out of the concept that most of the medicines back then were dried herbs. And so the word was drage, dry wares. And so interestingly enough, it's that they were using dried herbs as medicinals, as therapeutics. And so born out of that is this concept, uh, what originally brought forth the word drug, but it was not drug as we call it today, but drage or um, droge, D-R-O-G-E, in old French, and I'm, of course, probably mispronouncing that. But then when we update a little bit more in time, for example, 1708, kind of meant dry goods. So again, it kind of fits with that dry herb approach. But then when we come into the 19th century, it became equivalent to narcotics and opiates. It was actually in the 1500s that it was equated with poison drug. So when you look at it before, you know, kind of this concept of dried herbs, dried goods, poison and drug goes back to the 1500s, the 16th century. 
Then it was only in the 1700s and, and then the 1900s and beyond where it became equivalent and associated with narcotics and opiates. And this is where we kind of get the concept of druggy, drug addict. It's, it's this concept of poison. So when we look at the word drug, it literally in its root origin means a dry herb that is a poison. If, if you really want to kind of blend these different, these different um, historical origins together. So if, if somebody ever says these herbal therapies, these natural homeopathic therapies that you're using are poisons, just say, well, that's what drugs mean. So all the drugs that are out there in the market, yeah, you could say they're poisons, right? Um, now, pharmaco, which is the word looking at pharmacology, which is the study of pharma drugs, uh, is interesting because it looks at drug, medicine, and also poison. So again, we're looking at two different words, drug and pharmaco, and pharmaco can mean drug, but it also ties back to medicine. So is it a drug? Is it a medicine? Is it poison? You could say it's all three. Is a drug poison? In many cases, yes. Is a drug medicine? It can be, but immunotherapy doesn't require a poison, doesn't require a drug, and doesn't re require a conventional medical therapeutic or medicine as it goes. Then looking at the word pharmacy, which is from uh, 14th century, it's a medicine that rids the body of an excess of humors. Well, now there's something that you don't hear in today's conventional medical literature, or even the alternative for that matter is humors. But looking back at the original word pharmacy from 14th century, it talks about humors. And then looking at pharmacia, which is from a, a Greek word, pharmakeia, this is a healing or harmful medicine, a healing or poisonous herb, a drug, poisonous potion, or magic potion. Okay, so we're talking about words we throw around today, drugs, pharmacology, pharmaca, which is medications, okay? And these are talking about drugs, poisons, potions, magic potions, <laughs> and get this, uh, from pharmacaeus, a preparer of drugs, a poisoner, a sorcerer, a drug, a poison, charm, spell, enchantment. So really what we're talking about today as drugs, medications, pharmaceuticals, the root origin is spells, potions, and things that we don't think about today. So it's important to reconnect the word origin to the words even today, though they may be misused and misrepresented, their origin, drugs, pharmacology, is around poisons, harmful medicines, poisonous herbs, poisonous potions, magic, magic potions, charms, spells, enchantments. Not much we equate today, but it's all there. It's all there. So, so then when we look at the word ology, that literally just means the branch of knowledge. So it's the study of the branch of knowledge. So when, when we look at drugs, when we look at pharmacology, what we have to really understand that what we are using in our vernacular today as we discuss it really has no connection or origin to its history. So when somebody says, I don't want that poison, they could literally be saying, I don't want that prescription drug. But the reason why this argument's important is because it ties into immunotherapy. Because when people look at immunotherapeutics, it's considered as the fourth pillar of conventional cancer care. Full dose chemo, radiation, and surgery is being the primary three pillars, and then immunotherapeutics being the fourth. Yet this is a hijack of the word because immunotherapy has no context and no connection to whether it's a drug, a medication, a poison, a potion, a enchantment, a chant, or even natural therapies. It's just working on what is a therapy's impact. And we'll touch on that in just a second. But let's look at those two words, immunotherapy, so immune therapy. Historically, the word immuno or immune uh, really means free or exempt. So you think about that immune, think about this to a, a charge of say tax evasion, you're immune from charge, you're immune from prosecution. So, you know, free or exempt from. 
but looking at it from a medical perspective or a disease perspective, exempt from a disease. So you can see how that freedom or exemption from disease is tied to immuno. Now therapy is really kind of what you probably get. It's, it's a medical treatment of disease. It's the curing healing service done for and to the sick attend to do service and take care of. So when you then combine these two words, immuno and therapy, what we get is medical treatment of doses of therapies to free and unburden the body of disease. You could really say that's healing. And that's really what immunotherapy means. The origin of those words, the context of those words, it has no origin. It has no connection to conventional therapies. Yet what has happened is conventional medicine has hijacked this word immunotherapy. It literally just means anything that works within the confines of the immune system. Immunotherapy can be natural, it can be holistic, it can be conventional, and it can be integrative. All can be immunotherapeutics. One does not have ownership over the others. So, we want to recognize that immunotherapy is anything that can stimulate the immune system, anything that might suppress the immune system, anything that might modify the immune system, anything that affects and impacts the immune system. That is immunotherapy. Now let's, let's jump a little bit more forward to a more modern definition of immunotherapy. Uh, one article I want to highlight here published from 2023, I think really highlights this uh, modern definition well. Let me go ahead and just quote it from them. Quote, upregulate or downregulate the immune system to achieve a therapeutic effect in immunologic mediated disorders, including immunodeficiencies, hypersensitivity reactions, autoimmune diseases, tissue and organ transplantations, malignancy, inflammatory disease disorders, infectious diseases, and any other disease where immunotherapy can improve the quality and life expectancy. And then last is use of drugs, Okay, biologics, vitamins, minerals, and immunizations to control immune responses in diverse directions. So even there, this 2023 article highlights how this is not just confined to drugs. This is not just confined to immunostimulation. It could be immunosuppression. It could be modification. So this concept of what immunotherapy is really born out of antiquity and brought into modern, it's consistent. It's not, it, it doesn't change. So again, medicine doesn't have the patent on immunotherapy. Immunotherapy is just anything that modifies the immune system. And I'll show you in a second how that can be natural, holistic, integrative, and conventional. But I think this is important, this little, um, journey is important because words are powerful and how we use words I think correctly dictates what we're trying to communicate and in that same time we cannot allow words to be written in terms of their definition and their meaning or what history means and so we're not going to allow this to be hijacked immunotherapy again if you've been listening to any of the the podcasts and the communications we do I'm just really big on these, uh, these words. So that's what immunotherapy is. Anything that stimulates the immune system, suppresses the immune system, modifies the immune system, and impacts or affects the immune system. Now it's really interesting because we're talking about a disconnect here because most people would look at immunotherapy as drugs. But there's a complete disconnect within medicine about what this really means. And that shouldn't really come as a surprise. And I always talk to people about the disconnect between the, the, the medical establishment bureaucracy and, and then the rest of medicine. And it always surprises people. Uh, and I, of course, talk to this specifically about statistics. So I want to use this as a highlight to really talk about why what we think is happening in medicine and then what's really happening are two separate issues. And statistics, I think, is a good example of that. And that's going to then, we'll apply that to, to the meaning of words. And obviously, immunotherapy is a target there. There was a uh, past British Medical Journal chief editor, and I'm going to use his quote to make the point here. 
Now, it's really interesting because he's going to talk about reading and knowledge, etc. But there was a, a 2001 Institute of Medicine article that showed that the average physician is practicing at a level that's 17 years behind the science. Yes, you did hear that right. 17 years behind the science. And I've mentioned this quite a bit because that was 2001. Now, with all the massive information that we're now dealing with today on a daily best basis, on an hourly basis, how can one keep up with that? And to be honest, one literally cannot. And so I suspect that that 17-year discrepancy is worse. But here's a quote from this British Medical Journal chief editor. It is estimated that there are 1.29 papers published in, in the peer-reviewed medical literature every minute. Even if a doctor were able to keep up with this volume of reading, it is said that much of what is published is flawed. Now, his name was, is Richard Smith, and he's the former, of course, uh, editor of the British Medical Journal. And he's quoted as also saying that only five, that's, that's five, one, two, three, four, five, five percent of published pa papers reach minimum, minimum standards of scientific soundness and clinical relevance. And that in most journals, get this, the figure was less than one percent. So let's take it on a generous level, 5%. But in most, again, chief medical editor, editor of the premier British medical journal is saying less than 1% or greater than 99% of all journal publications is and lacks any clinical relevance. So there's somebody that was in the know that, and often when you, when you hear these things, they often turn out to be worse than maybe what they really are presented as. And so that example of statistics, I think really highlights where people believe the statistics of medicine are and where they really are, where people believe the reliability of the science and the unbiased nature of publications is and where they really are. But also we can apply that to immunotherapy because where people believe and what immunotherapy means and what it really is, is two different places. And just an interesting note too, they looked at a period from 2000 to 2010 at a total of 788 papers that had actually been retracted through that 10 year time frame. And they actually found that three quarters of those papers had been withdrawn because of serious error. Now, if you then extrapolate that number back from 1950 to 2004, you're looking at roughly somewhere between 10,000 up to 100,000 articles that would be extracted for just serious error, okay? So, and today we have more data, more studies, and obviously that is going to translate to more errors. But, you know, the question is how much retractions are we seeing? Some, yes, that uh, are retracted because they're counter to the narrative, but some are retracted because of bias and flaws. So I think there's a lot that's going on behind the scenes and throughout medicine that most are not aware of. And when I look at patients, when I look at family members and I talk to them about statistics and words and what they means and the reliability of evidence and bias and study design, there's, there's a lot of uh, misunderstanding or just not you know, appropriate knowledge and it shouldn't be. But I think through that, a lot of the medical industry uses that to their advantage and to the detriment of patients because they can't know all of the statistical workings of studies, all the issues in study design, ensuring selection uh, appropriate selection, uh, inclusion, exclusion criteria, eliminating bias. So, you know, doctors have a hard time with this. I mean, goodness gracious, I have a hard time with this. You have to keep up, up on the statistics and, and it's a challenge, but you have to commit to it. So I think the industry knows that and they use it for their advantage, but we're not going to let that happen. We're going to present you with the historical root origin of the words and provided proper context. And we're going to call out what needs to be called out, even if it's in the natural, holistic, and integrated world, but also in the conventional. 
because what we are as physicians are, are purveyors of truth. We're healers and we're teachers. And that's what, that's what the word doctor in Latin, dossier, means. So in that process, we have to teach. But we have to, we have to teach truth. So I think at this point, it would be really good to, um, to focus on a little bit of a timeline of immunotherapy. Because when you look at immunotherapy beyond just the word, there's a, there's a strong history of the research around immunotherapy. Strong, strong, strong. But what's really interesting is around the years, you know, 1990s, 2000, the, the move of research around immunotherapy moved from out beyond just understanding and awareness to one of just drugs, poisons, potions, enchantments. So I wanted to highlight just really um, in detail, actually, some of this timeline as it relates to immunotherapy. So let's go all the way back to a Hollywood movie, The Mummies, The Mummy series. And that series highlighted a Egyptian, Imhotep, and, and basically he was involved in mummies and all that kind of stuff. So you can go back and watch that. That's not the purpose of why we're discussing Imhotep. It's just that here's a historical figure that we're fixing to drop into immunotherapy timeline and Hollywood was all about him, but not for the right reason. But interestingly enough in the movies, he's focusing on potions. He's focusing on enchantments. He's focusing on poisons. Interesting how these things tie together. But Imhotep lived somewhere around 2600 BC. And what he did, and this was documented in what's called Ebers Papyrus from 1500 BC, is he actually uh, documented or took care of patients because he was a physician. But in this papyrus, it was documented how he treated a lot of different ailments, diseases. And so one of those was a, a particular patient with breast cancer where he put poultice and herbs and dirt over the lesion of the breast and then, of course, bound it, but then cut through it with a knife. Now, why would that have any connection with immunotherapy? Well, you do that to induce an infection. And that's exactly what he was out to do. And he showed that that shrinked the tumor. Now, why induce the infection? you stimulate the immune system. What he was doing there was stimulating the immune system, that's immunotherapy. But he was doing it through an infection. Then fifth, the 5th century BC, our next stop in this historical timeline, was a quote, give me the power to produce fever and I will cure all disease. 5th century BC. It's incredible how far back this goes, let alone Imhotep in 2600 BC. 46, it's 460 to 370 BC, that's when Hippocrates lived, and he proposed this treatment, and this is a quote attributed to him for cancer, what medicine does not heal, the lance will, what the lance does not heal, fire will. Okay, that is a reference, fire, to the immune system which is exactly what Imhotep was doing. They're separated by almost 2,100 years. Then in ancient China, the, the Qin dynasty, or Qin dynasty, Q-I-N, my uh, youngest daughter loves Mandarin, studies it, so she's probably going to butcher my pronouncement of that. But they actually worked on the prevention of smallpox through purposeful, intentional inoculation with the virus and so this is actually one of the first inoculations you might call, you know, vaccination, if you will, that's taken on a very negative connotation, but that's exactly what's happening here back in ancient China. They're using a virus to induce an immune response, fire, fever, infection, to induce immune response to protect. Now, that is, I think, a very natural and holistic approach what has been taken on by that industry with the inoculations and vaccinations, I think is something completely different. So I just wanted to provide that caveat there. And obviously that's become a very focus of intentional debate about how far that goes and how far that's gone and whether that, that we ever want to go there. Go to ancient Egypt. 
the first concept of immunotherapy were rooted in the pr principles of infectious disease dating back to an ancient Greek philosopher, Thucydides, and if I mispronounce that, again, my apology, T-H-U-C-Y-D-I-D-E-S. And he was the first to write about gaining and triggering immunity to target specific disease. And this was in the process of the plague that hit Athens in about 430 BC. And he, he discovered that those that were able to survive the infection, they didn't get the disease a second time. So again, that kind of fits with what they did in China, where it was an, an intentional inoculation, infection. And here in ancient Greece, it was you know, non-intentional, but it provided protection. Then 2nd century AD, Galen, describing how cancer may evolve from inflammatory lesions. So we're, we're, we're talking about, you know, right there, going from BC to AD. Okay, so we're talking thousands of years ago. Now, let's move up a little bit more modern time. 1718, Lady Mary Wortley Montague was in and around the Ottoman Empire, wife of a British ambassador there, and she was residing in Istanbul at the time. And she first attempted to popularize what the Qin Dynasty did back in, in China, inoculations for the purpose of protection. 1722, so a few, a few years later, Dr. Maitland, under the guide of the Princess of Wales, actually allowed the intentional inoculation of six prisoners with smallpox, irregardless of the morality and ethics of that. But this Princess of Wales allowed the intentional inoculation of six prisoners with smallpox. And after the prisoners recovered from their infection, thankfully, they were released from prison, I guess, in, uh, in payment for, for their intentional um, inoculation. But they exposed them to active smallpox. They recovered, and then they were able to show that by them going out in the community where the community was dealing with smallpox, they did not get infected. So this, in essence, was a trial. Again, moral and ethics of it, completely different um, you know, debate. But what you can see here is the same concept of immunotherapy. Nin uh, 1765, Dr. John Fuster, the first British reports about the effectiveness of the inoculation. So again, you can kind of see this timeline taking off. 1796, Edward Jenner demonstrated protective immunity against smallpox through inoculation with the common cowpox virus. Again, using an immune response via infection to induce an immune uh, uh, protection. 1830, Joseph Recamer used electrical heat to remedy uterine cancer. So here now, not just using infection, because a lot of this previously had been infection, but here we're actually seeing a transition to heat. Well, when you look at some of the cardinal symptoms of inflammation, which ties to infection, heat is one of those. And so that is a biomarker of inflammation. That's a biomarker of immune activity, because when you get sick, what do you get? You get a fever. That is your immune system hyperactive. It's also elevating enzymes. It's, it's, it's elevating the overall function of the body. But here it's, it's a, a, a manifestation of the immune system. So back to the timeline. 1866, uh, two German physicians, the Helsen and Bush. And again, I apologize. But these uh, are the first two scientists to attempt to modulate the patient's immune system to cure cancer. Okay, so two German physicians they noticed that significant tumor regression occurred after erysipelas infection. So another infection, this is a skin infection, but they understood by stimulating the immune system here, now we've moved from infection. Now we're saying we're specifically trying to trigger the immune system through infection to target cancer. Now, previously it, it had been on heat and it, even Imhotep though was, was doing a very similar process. 1883, Streptococcus pyogenes was identified as a bacteria that was responsible for this erysipelas infection and the tumor shrinkage. So again, more understanding, but again, focusing on the immune system. The focus is still here on the immune system, not drugs. 1889, John Byrne published his success of treating 367 uterine and cervical cancer patients using an electrical current to cauterize the tissue. 
heat. And he confirmed that the heat killed deeper lying cancer cells, and get this, while preserving normal tissue. See, that's the beauty of natural and holistic therapies. They, they target the abnormal cells, here the cancer cells, and they don't hurt and destroy the healthy cells. This has been seen in vitamin C, photodynamic therapy, photobiomodulation therapy, curcumin, and here, heat, cauterized tissue. Hyperthermia. 1890, the discovery of antibodies, uh, the discovery of antibodies, Ehrlich, von Behring, and somebody else here who I won't butcher, but Ehrlich is Paul Ehrlich, and he actually was an immunologist. And what he did is he focused on things like the treatment of syphilis, the immune system, but he also brought forth the magic bullet theory. And so I've talked a lot about him elsewhere, but here he's actively involved in the discovery of antibodies because, of course, he was an immunologist. Then we start to approach the, the um, 20th century, early 20th century, but it's still late 19th century here, 1891. Dr. William Bradley Coley. Coley. He is today known as the father of immunotherapy. In 1891, he actually published a pa paper. He was a surgeon, and he published a paper of the treatment of a patient with osteosarcoma with the immune system. Now, how did he do that? He induced a deliberate infection. He delivered inactivated two bacteria, Streptococcus pyogenes and Marcesins. And these two bacteria inactivated induced an infection. Now, obviously the goal here was to cure the patient. He was very frustrated as a surgeon to continually surgically remove the tumor. And that's what happens in sarcomas and osteosarcomas. The primary treatment is you just cut it out. It's, it's typically not very responsive to other therapies, though at that time there weren't any other therapies other than cut it out. And so he was seeking an alternative, but it's actually interesting when you look at his data, when you look at his publication, because he was very prolific in his publications, he actually was just simply going back through history of some of what I just presented, and he was going, interesting, infection, fever, immune system stimulation, treatment for cancer. So he was basically just connecting the dots that history had already preceded him. So he published this in 1891, and uh, interestingly enough, you would have thought that this was met with accolades, and that he would have become, you know, uh, chief editor of every article, journal, you know, publisher, keynote speaker that you can think of. Well, there, there was definitely a lot of fanfare for a while. Um, the problem with these infections is they could be very uh, egregious and uh, very uh, difficult, very severe and uncontrollable. Patients would be in the hospital for days and days on end. Um, so eventually then about a coinciding, you know, radiation and chemotherapy coming on board, uh, he started to become maligned and actually defamed. Now, it was only once the immune system started to restore its, you know, status in the process of cancer in the 50s and 60s that it started to come back to front and center where, wow, Dr. Coley actually knew what he was doing. He was just updating what Dr. Imhotep, Agent Egypt, was doing. So he was just updating that. And he was seeing the immune response. And in fact, it's documentation of one patient with stage four cancer living 47 years. That type of duration of therapy, progression-free survival, overall survival, is unheard of today. Unheard of. But here's a surgeon from 1891 publishing on that. He published another article in 1893 uh, where he documented multiple cases of successful treatment using this combination of inactivated uh, bacteria. And again, what he was noticing is spontaneous remissions here. 1896, George Doc. This is different. So um, William Coley was using bacteria here in 1896. 
he was actually, there was a physician here, George Doc, was actually using viruses. So he noticed, or he, excuse me, he observed viruses. So he noticed that the first uh, spontaneous tumor regression he documented here of acute leukemia was after a severe influenza infection. So it wasn't inducing the infection per se, but he noticed that a patient that had uh, acute leukemia developed spontaneous remission after a severe influenza infection. So we talked about bacteria, now we talked about viruses. Prior, Imhotep was a, you know, an infection through a cut. 1899, actually coming to commercial market was Coley's toxin. Then in 1902 was the first ever attempt to make a cancer vac vaccine. So when people talk about cancer vaccines as a modern thing, this goes way, way, way back. Blumenthal and Van Leyden in 1902. So again, we're talking about over 100 years ago now. Erwick confirms Coley's work in 1908. Paul Erwick confirms his work of William Coley in 1908. Clarence Little in 1914 described a genetic explanation for the rejection of transplanted tumors in animal models. He was describing how the immune system was rejecting uh, intentionally laboratory-induced and transplanted tumors. Again, the immune system, immunotherapy, understanding the process as it relates to cancer. 1950, Murphy and Morton not found non-specific stimulation of immune cells as a treatment for cancer. Again, expanding knowledge, expanding knowledge. 1920, mistletoe first proposed as a cancer treatment by Rudolf Steiner. So mistletoe, not just for Christmas, not just to steal a kiss, but here actually being discovered. And now we know that mistletoe plays a role in the immune system, standalone, but also in conjunction with other therapies. 1921, BCG was first developed at the Pasteur Institute, BCG being a, a viral therapy used in the treatment of bladder cancer, but it was first discovered in 1921. Then when you look at the 1930s, we really started to enter a dark phase of medicine and the immune system. I would call it a 20-year dark period of immunology because that's when cancer, chemotherapy, radiation, that became their golden years. That, that's where it began. And so because of that, the focus turned away from the immune system. In fact, the predominant theory was that the immune system had nothing to do with cancer development or how to treat cancer. So about 20 years, and it's during that phase that Dr. William Coley was much maligned, ostracized. You know, I guess he might as well have been saying the earth is round and the rest were saying it's flat. 1948, Gores and Snell looked at the first, they actually reported the first time histocompatibility antigens which were involved in this transplant injection. Again, still focusing on immune system, still focusing on immune system, not drugs. 1957, Isaacs and Lindemann discovered interferon. This is an immune signal involved very importantly in the immune system and in cancer. Thomas and Burnett in 1957 introduced the theory of cancer immunosurveillance, the immune system actually surveilling the environment of different types of cells to protect the body against all enemies, foreign and domestic. 1957 also, Helen Coley was the, was the founder of Cancer Research Institute of New York. This was in honor of her father, William Coley. And she dedicated this to the development of the immune-based treatments for cancer. So she was just continuing on. This was Helen Coley continuing on with her father's work, 1957. Again, the dark period hopefully moving behind us at that point in history and starting to enter the enlightenment of immunotherapy as a component in cancer spread, but also cancer treatment. In 1959, a husband and wife team, Ruth and John Graham, published the first ever study on cancer vaccination. They looked at 114 patient cohort of gynecological cancer patients, and they, they treated them with uh, tumor lysate. So basically tumor, and they broke it down, lysed it all up, the just different components of these cells, and they introduced that through uh, inoculation as a vaccine study. So that's a cancer vaccine, but it's just basically they just kind of destroy and 
rattle up through, lysi, uh, through a lysis process the cancer, the cells, and they gave that back to stimulate the immune system. That was 1959. Pretty innovative when you think about it. Again, in 1959, Lloyd Old, he published the anti-tumor activity of BCG using the live attenuated strain of Mycobacterium bovis. So now this is a bacteria, and I think I mis misappropriately quoted his viral therapy, but uh, BCG is a, is a bacteria. So what we have here is the discovery in 1921 of BCG, and then what we have is here in 1959, actually the publish of its anti-tumor activity. 1962, okay, the first literature look at vitamin C involvement in immunotherapy in the polio vaccine. So you know, when you look at a lot of the paperwork that talk about the timeline of immunotherapy, it's all immune system and then it makes this transition to, to drugs. And, and what I wanted to do is highlight here where some specific natural holistic integrative therapies bleed into that mix as well. And here it's 1962, vitamin C involvement in the immune therapy, particularly related to polio vaccine. It was augmenting the impact and the effectiveness of the polio vaccine. 1962, vitamin C. 1967, Jacques Miller, discovery of T cells and their critical involvement in immunity. So T cells and their connection to immunity, which is very important in cancer, goes all the way back to the 1960s. Make love, not war, I believe is, is what was the saying there. Stinman in 1973 discovered dendritic cells, another very important immune cell that's important as an antigen presenting cell to really uh, engulf cancer cells and then it's share that to the rest of the immune system so the immune system can get involved there. Again, still focusing on the process of understanding the immune system and its connectivity to treatment. 1974, Stutman, reemergence of this immunosurveillance theory concept. So it was initially presented, kind of fell by the wayside, and then kind of came back around. 1975, Klein first described natural killer cell activity. Natural killer cells do exactly what their name implies. They naturally kill. They just need to be directed what to kill. Very instrumental and very important in cancer therapy. 1975, also Milstein and Kohler, first lab production of monoclonal antibodies. Monoclonal antibodies over the last three years, four years, pandemic, obviously have a lot of, uh, a lot of publicity, but they actually go back to 1975. The first known use of the word immunomodulator or immunomodulation goes back to 1975. Immunomodulation is anything that modulates the immune system. That could be balancing it, buffer it, stimulating it, suppressing it, and that ties right into immunotherapy. But the first time that word used, 1975. So we've come out of the dark ages, thanks to Helen Coley kind of rebooting her, her father's work. We see others starting to better understand the immune system, and we start to come out of that, and we start to enlighten, enter the enlightenment of immunotherapy phase, I think, in history, where we still are, but I think we've gotten a little diverted where we're now moving towards just all drugs. Morales in 1976 published on the BCG bacteria being used to treat bladder cancer. So we have two instances where bacteria, heat, where bacteria inactivated are being used to treat cancer. Dr. William Coley, he treated osteosarcomas and many other types of cancers, and then BCG being used to treat bladder cancer. So bacteria, yes, virus, I just quoted the one. 1976, Morgan, Rossetti, and Gallo. Uh, looked at interleukin-2 as a T-cell growth factor. This was discovered in 1976. Interleukin-2, very important immune signal that is actually approved uh, for, you know, advanced stage 4 melanoma, uh, but in low doses, IL-2 with melatonin, very effective immune stimulant. But good luck finding that therapy today, even in a low dose where you actually have minimal side effects and it's very effective in stimulating the immune system, interleukin-2, stimulates uh, natural killer cells and T-cell recruitment and activity against enemies, foreign and domestic. Uh, 1977, again, Lloyd Old predicts immunotherapy as the fourth pillar of conventional medicine. Early on, I talked about how, um, you know, there's four pillars, conventional, uh, chemotherapy, radiation, surgery. Here, it's immunotherapy, and that was predicted in 1977. 1980 was the launch of the International Journal of Hyperthermia. Hyperthermia is taking the fever response and trying to create a and construct a controlled environment. So that's the 1980s. May not have heard about hyperthermia, but we'll, we'll touch on that in just a little bit. 
So after the launch of the International Journal of Hyperthermia in the 1980s, 1993, we actually have the uh, publication, the description by Mastroianni that melatonin plays a role as a immunoendocrine modifier. So melatonin, not just for sleep, here working as a hormone, but within the immune system. And of course, since then, a plethora of research has just hit, hit, the, uh, hit the stage, if you will, about how powerful melatonin is as an immunotherapy. 2010, the first immune checkpoint is discovered, cytotoxic T lymphocyte type 4. So 2010, brunette. But in 2018, they had the first article that published showing that artesanate was effective in reversing tumor immunosuppression. So before, get this now, timeline, before the first immunocheckpoint, which is kind of the launch, I would say, of modern-day immunotherapy as a drug. That was in 2010. But in 2008, predating it, again, long before that, vitamin C, long before that, Dr. William Coley, but in 2008, they showed that artesanate was effective in reversing tumor immunosuppression. That's really important because the immune system within the tumor microenvironment is very immunosuppressive in, in cancer that's progressing and spreading. But here, artesanate, the gold standard treatment for malaria coming from sweet wormwood, very effective in cancer, being shown to impact the immune system within a very, very tight window of the tumor microenvironment, predating the modern day conventional flagship immuno immune checkpoint, and then the immune checkpoint inhibitors. In 2009, low-dose metronomic chemo was shown to deplete T-regulator cells. Again, deep, you know, preceding the immune checkpoint discovery and the immune checkpoint inhibitors that, are, that bring forth many of the drugs that we talk about today and you see in advertising today. Low-dose metronomic chemotherapy is equatable to insulin-potentiated therapy. Of course, what we do at Brio is low-dose metronomic chemotherapy with insulin potentiation. Low-dose metronomic here being very low-dose and more, um, more frequent in treatment. But what's interesting here in this publication from two, 2009, they showed that this lower dosing, more frequent, did not destroy the immune system, but actually supported it, modified it, modulated it. Here specifically, suppressing T regulator cells, which are very important in creating that immune suppressive environment in the tumor microenvironment. But if you look at the other data, it actually, the low dose metronomic chemotherapy stimulates the natural killer cells and T lymphocytes, including activity. So this is how you get the, the concept of modulation, immunomodulation, meaning here, low dose metronomic chemo can suppress some immune cells and some immune parts, but it can actually stimulate it versus compare that to full-dose chemo, which I document over in the unholy trinity of uh, high-dose chemo, it can destroy the immune system unrepairably. 2012, low-dose metronomic chemo by NARS and Canero, Canerno was shown to be immunomodulatory. So 2012, low-dose metronomic chemo, lowers better. It actually modifies the immune system. It basically counters the immunosuppressive state and stimulates the immune system to do its job. But full dose does not do that. 2017 was a landmark study by a friend of mine, Paul Merrick, in vitamin C and sepsis. Sepsis is an out-of-control out of immune system infection and the out-of-control immune response as a, as a result of that. And he used a low-dose vitamin C with thiamine hydro, hydrocortisone to actually save lives heal. Remember, Hippocrates, physician heal thyself, updated Hippocrates, teach patients to heal themselves. So here, Paul Merrick, Dr. Paul Merrick, was taking on the principles, I think, that go back all the way to Hippocrates and was working to save lives, to treat patients, but he was using the immune system, but using vitamin C as an immunomodulator there. So that brings us to more conventional times. But what's happened is when you again look at the, the, the literature as it's been published, as we made this move at around that point of the immune checkpoint discovery in 2010 and then into the inhibitors, that's where things seems to have reared off course, where it's been all then at that point about the drugs, 
about the pharmacope, about the pharmacokea, about the poisons, the herbs, the potions, and not in the enchantment, and not necessarily about what the immune system is actually doing and how that's used for the defenses and how that can be used to prevent cancer, but also how that can be used to treat cancer. And again, irrespective of what's being used as an immunotherapeutic, that's the timeline. Now, it'll be interesting to see where the timeline goes from here. But what I want to do is make sure that we restore the actual true aspect of what this timeline looks looks like and work within the immune system in a way that heals, in a way that promotes well-being. Don't create a new. The defenses are already there. Again, the body's immune system is designed to protect against all foreign and domestic enemies. Cancer falls into the domestic category. Yet what Coley has shown and the research with Morales and BCG has shown, and even with the uh, virus influenza, if you induce an infection, you can actually stimulate the immune system to fight. So that's a uh, foreign enemy. You actually stimulate the immune system to fight the domestic enemy. So really interesting when you look at that timeline. I'm just making a catching up here. So, so again, types of immunotherapy as we move away from that timeline, natural, holistic, integrative, and yes, conventional. And that timeline history shows about 2010 is where things have moved into kind of a, just a different you know, aspect of history. That's the conventional. It's kind of like what happened with William Coley and those dark, those 20 years or so of dark ages as it relates to immunotherapy. And then his daughter brought that forth. So we don't want this to become 20 years, you know, 2010, 2023, we're right there. So we need to basically start to uh, restore the enlightenment, if you will, and uh, bring back what immunotherapy is. And why is immunotherapy in the immune system so important to cancer? Well, there's seven reasons. When you look at what cancer is, it is not some foreign alien implanted in your body. I mean, that's the way we all perceive it. Cut it out now, cut it out yesterday, right? I mean, that's kill it, kill it, kill it. And that's the kind of war mentality. But cancer is a part of that person's individual. And the joke or the analogy I give this is, they're doing, they're doing the wrong things with normal things. Take a box of matches, give them to a five-year-old and then leave the house. You're probably going to have some uh, uh, anxious hours concerning you may burn the house down. Matches don't themselves burn the house down, but in the wrong hands, they do. Then take that same individual 20 years later. You shouldn't have any anxious hours about those matches being used to burn the house down. That analogy is not exact, but I think you get the picture there. And so what we have here is when you go to war on cancer, you're going to war on the body. And that's why that concept destroys the immune system. But by destroying the immune system, in effect, to get that, that short-term no evidence of disease or, or, or reduction, you actually could set the stage for long-term immune impact that sets the stage for metastatic spread and ultimately mortality. And that's what the literature shows as it relates to what I talked about with the unholy trinity. We cannot damage the immune system. We, we must support the immune system as, the work, work, as we work to eliminate the cancer. So immune evasion is critical to cancer survival and metastatic spread and ultimately mortality. So most common immune evasion strategies by these tumor cells really involve seven points. First is the secretion of immune suppressor molecules. These immune checkpoints, again, CTLA-4, first discovered 2010. And you see them advertised on everything. You know, this is where they're dancing on the beach with you know, butterflies and, oh, you know, your, your left toe may fall off, your foot will fall off, your head will fall off, but this will you know, block this immune checkpoint. They can be very helpful. And I don't mean to, you know, make light of it, but the way it's presented, if you ever watch that, is they're, you know, running down the beach and just, you know, giving kisses and hugs and, you know, talking about limbs falling off and whatever. And then they say, oh, but it, it treats cancer. 
And I, I the, 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 basically the, the difference of picture and what you hear is so funny. Number two is production and polarization of M2 macrophages. Um, M2 macrophages are a, within the tumor microenvironment, there is this shifting of macrophages from M1 type 2 to M2. Same thing happens with neutrophils, and this actually becomes immunoprotective for the cancer in the tumor microenvironment. Number three, abnormal antigen presentation by the major histocompatibility type 1 and type 2. Number four, negative stimulation of the T-cell receptor signaling pathway through downregulation of antigens and the upregulation of an immune system within the tumor microenvironment that's just inert. It, it's not active. So essentially there, you have immune, system, immune cells within the tumor microenvironment. So think of that as maybe your Marines and, and, and your Army, and they're all sitting there having a coffee break. They're, just, they're not doing anything. So in that, the, the immune system is there. It's, it's present, but it's not accounted for. It's not active. Then number five is low immunogenicity, uh, T-cell apoptosis in inhibition, and you have loss of cytotoxic T-lymphocyte induction of cell death. Number six, attraction and induction of T-reg cells. I've already talked about that in the timeline. T-regulator cells are actually immune cells, T-cells that actually suppress and so again, what cancer is doing, it's not creating anything new. It's actually using what's there. It's adulterating, it's misusing it, misapplying it. So here, T regulator cells, which could actually keep the immune system from say attacking oneself, the cancer takes that property on, makes full use of that, and it suppresses the immune system within the tumor microenvironment or in distant sites. And that keeps the immune system from doing its job. And it also depletes natural killer cells. And you get attraction then also uh, and polarization of myelo-derived suppressor cells. Uh, I put them in the kind of the ballpark of Tregs and, and, and TGF-beta because what happens is these are immune cells that get recruited to the microenvironment, uh, just like what the M1 macrophages do, and then they get manipulated or adulterated. But here these cells get recruited to the tumor microenvironment and they, they start to suppress the immune system. So our understanding of the immune system and its involvement in cancer progression and then cancer spread, mind-blowing. I mean, it's mind-blowing. We understand the mechanisms here, and we understand the mechanisms of how our treatments are impacting that. And we don't want to focus on just short-term gains for long-term destruction. We must focus on short-term gains as a step stone to long-term healing. Until we achieve that in the field of integrative cancer, we must keep working. The pathway to healing is not through destruction. The pathway of healing is through healing. It's through the immune system. But that would imply we focus on the immune system. There was a group that um, started back in the early 2000s. I don't know when exactly it was founded, but it's called Best Answers for Cancer. And a shout out to Amy Brandt. She's passed away here a few years ago. Got to, had the pleasure of meeting her. Um, she was founder of the Best Answers for Cancer. And it, it was a group that was really working to uh, bring together doctors in the world of integrative cancer, oncology, as well as patients. Now, I have some exciting news for you there. We'll be, it's gonna be relaunching very soon. And it's gonna be, um, high, um, piggybacking with the Annie Appleseed Conference, and I believe that's February or March 2024. I can't remember which month that is, but look for that coming soon. As I said, best answer for cancer is to not get it. It's prevention. But the best answer, the best answer for cancer beyond that, uh, it's the immune system. And Annie Brandt understood that, as did so many before her. So hats off to you, Annie. The best answer for cancer in the long term, it's not surgery, chemo, radiation. The best answer for cancer is the immune system and anything that helps it, modifies it, balances it, but destroys the cancer cell and preserves the remaining immune system to do its job, not just short term, but long term. So that's a wrap. That's a take. Dr. Goodyear from here in Cabo San Lucas did this podcast on immunotherapy. Next, what we're going to bring to you is an expert, a colleague, a friend of mine. We graduated from LSU Health Science Center in Shreveport. We actually sat next to each other for two years in all the aspects of medical school. But we're going to talk about all things integrative, 
conventional immunotherapy, but here highlights some very specific innovative things that he's doing in Cabo San Lucas and how that integrates with a lot of natural holistic integrative things we're doing at Brio Medical. Because see, it's about working together, knowledge, sharing knowledge and empowering each other to empower patients. So I encourage you to follow us at the Practicing with Dr. Nathan Goodyear podcast. More, I encourage you to subscribe. We have tons of people that listen. Thank you very much. Just hit that subscribe button and also share it. Share it with your friends, share it with your family. Again, grow the knowledge and that is how we empower more people. That's how we change the direction of medicine and get it refocused on patients. So Dr. Goodyear signing off. Again, also check me out on Instagram at the Dr.Goodyear. And again, practicing with Dr. Nathan Goodyear. I will talk to you soon. For more information, just like what we discussed today, I encourage you to follow us on YouTube as well as all of your favorite audio streaming platforms. And in there, we'll talk about all things related to healing, wellness, cancer, and much, much beyond because it doesn't just apply to cancer. Our goal here is to turn to healing, restore health, and promote your wellness. Whether that greatest obstacle to wellness being cancer or any other named disease, our goal is your wellness. I'm Dr. Nathan Goodyear, and enjoy our future podcast at Practicing with Dr. Goodyear.